Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. everybody. This is Kimberly Paul with Death by Design podcast. And today I am joined by Dr. Jody Stern, which we met several months ago when I was in Greensboro. Uh, Jody, Dr. Well, what do I call you? Is it already right if I call you Jody? Yeah, sure. Uh, but you are a physician. Um, you work for Cone Health in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. So tell me, what do you do there? So I'm a neurosurgeon. I'm actually in a group called uh, Carolina Neurosurgeon and Spine Associates, which is a um, large private practice group in um, North Carolina. Um, I do uh, brain and spine um, surgery. I take care of patients uh, and kind of co-director of the brain tumor clinic, uh, brain tumor program at Cone. And so I've had the opportunity to take care of patients in all phases of their life from simple uh, elective surgery to profound illnesses, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages, intracerebral hemorrhages, and and uh, have dealt with more than my share of, of dying patients. Wow. <laughs> wow, that is... Um, it, do, you, do you find sometimes uh, it tough to uh, go in and, and do this sort of surgery and, and you can't do anything for them? I mean... So, so I, um, I think I'd, I'd like to tell you a little bit about my background because I think it does have a big impact on sure. my where I am uh, now. Um, I was in practice for a, a number of years and uh, thought I was doing a pretty good job. Thought I, I was relatively compassionate and empathetic. And then my uh, younger sister Victoria was diagnosed with acute leukemia. Uh, she ended up; she was fifty-two at the time. This was about four years ago. Ago, uh, she ended up having a bone marrow transplant, uh, and then she subsequently died when her leukemia came back. And that kind of rattled my world and um, made me see things in a different light. I suddenly saw what it was like to be a patient. Uh, I'd never really been in in a situation where I actually. Uh, was a patient or was very close with a patient. And I saw that it was a very different experience than I thought I was participating in as a physician. You know, we waited long time for information. I was kind of on the edge of my seat, kind of waiting for for news and for prognostic information, waiting for test results. It was, I found it to be a terrifying and very disruptive experience. And I did have difficult time than going back from that experience and just resuming my normal practice and normal care of patients. So I found that to be a very disruptive experience. Wow. And, and, and as you were take you were experiencing this personally, and then you were able to kind of look at how you practice and change it based on this personal experience. That's, that's amazing. So what are the, some of the things you changed? Well, so with my sister, uh, she, when she was diagnosed, she uh, was told that she had a very poor prognosis, but she really didn't want that information. Uh, and she was never willing to admit the possibility of dying. Uh, and she had two young sons and a husband and was not 
forthright with the idea that she would die. It was almost as if she said, I'm not going to die. And if I don't, if I don't breathe any reality into the idea that I might die, then I'm going to survive. But her, the reality of her diagnosis was that she had about a 6% five-year possibility of survival. So she had what's called a acute uh, myeloma, uh, myelogenous uh, leukemia, or AML. She had what's called a, a monosomy 7, which is a drop of the seventh chromosome, and that's the mutation. So uh, uh, leukemia stratified, survival stratified based on what kind of mutation. So she was in the worst group of the worst of a bad disease right from the get-go. Yeah. Uh, but she never wanted to talk to her kids about that. And then when she had a recurrence of her leukemia uh, after the bone marrow transplant quite early, essentially there was no very, very little hope. But instead of talking honestly with her family and talking honestly with their physicians, they, tra- they started new chemotherapy. They called it chemotherapy light because her bone marrow was very fragile and was not in a position to uh, um, do well uh, with more aggressive chemotherapy because the, the, the new cells were only taking just starting to take hold, so they couldn't kill them. So in the end, what they did was they did sort of light chemotherapy. They're kind of moving sideways. No one really admitted what was going on. And then when she died, her family was totally shocked. And I so I learned very uh, intimately that you need to be upfront, mm-hmm. have honest discussions. And I think it's fine to be aggressive in terms of your care, but you also need to be willing to to contend with the possibility of dying. You know, for her, she had young kids and she was totally determined to live and to recover, and I get that. But I think that she didn't uh, take advantage of a gift, which was the possibility, knowledge that she might die and to say goodbye to people. Mm-hmm. And so I think when she didn't do that, I, I felt that was a loss uh, from her standpoint, but I also felt that it was a, a lost opportunity from the physicians taking care of her to have those honest and, and really uh, serious conversations where you admit that things aren't going so well and this doesn't look so good and we probably need to talk about dying. Wow. Wow. So... I'm you talk about a personal experience uh, that's ump close and very personal and wow and this kind of opened the door to sort of your uh, love for palliative care and how you weave that into some of what you do. Well, it, it was actually a double whammy because after my sister died, her husband, Pat, um, about a year and a half later, so they were basically three guys in the house, two boys and Pat. He had a sudden subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a, basically a ruptured aneurysm in his brain, brain exploded, and he went in, into a coma. And it was actually really very difficult because uh, Victoria's children um, – uh, Nick and Will, Nick was the donor for um, for Pat for the uh, bone marrow transplant. And then he was alone with his dad when he had the subarachnoid hemorrhage and had to do CPR and call um, EMS. And they took him emergently. They lived in L.A. So they went to the hospital. They went to UCLA Medical Center. And so Pat was then in a coma. Um, in the ICU at the in the neurosurgical ICU and at UCLA, so all of a sudden, 
I get a phone call saying, and I'd just been writing about my sister's illness and her and her death. And then I get a call that, oh, Pat's in the ICU. He's in a coma and he's had a ruptured aneurysm. And the thing is, this is now kind of where I live because I take care of people with this sort of thing all the time. Right. So I was already the healthcare power of attorney for Pat. Uh, and I'm the only doctor in the extended family. And so I was neurosurgeon. So all of a sudden I was really in the thick of things. So I, I hopped on a plane from uh, North Carolina, where I lived, Greensboro, and flew to Los Angeles and spent the next couple of weeks kind of there back and forth, but having to make very difficult decisions and talk with the physicians and surgeon about, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to manage Pat's illness and his subarachnoid hemorrhage? What are, how are we going to make decisions? And it was the total opposite of Victoria's experience because he was in a coma. He never mm-hmm. woke up. Um, and so, and it was an immediate illness instead of a prolonged illness. You know, my sister was, was coherent and totally with it and able to talk and participate with her family until she had a cardiac arrest from, as a result from sepsis. But she had a, like a year and a half or a year where she was totally participating. Pat was kind of lights out from the time of the hemorrhage. Uh, and this was a guy who was, uh, a venture capitalist, super active, ran five companies, wow. you know, kind of a total, uh, totally powerful, engaged person. And all of a sudden he was in a coma. And I remember we, we, I flew to L.A. Uh, this happened on I got news of this on a Saturday night. I flew to L.A. on a Sunday morning. I arrived in in Los Angeles at the Ronald Reagan Medical Center. We sat around waiting for the surgeon. It, one of the things that was really nice and what I realized is remember the kindness, the small kindnesses of other people, which make huge differences. Um, you know, I, there was no one down there. It was on a Sunday. We sat for a couple hours. We were all exhausted because we'd flown in from the East Coast and hadn't been sleeping at all. I, I snuck up to the neuro ICU, rang the buzzer, um, and talked to the charge nurse and explained the situation. She was, gave me a big hug. She was incredibly nice. She said, go get some sleep. There are going to be hours. I'll call you when they're getting done. So we went left uh, and slept for a few hours. Then we came back and we were standing in the lobby. And I said to uh, his brother and uh, um, sister-in-law, Pat's brother and sister-in-law, I said, that's the neurosurgeon because I knew the walk, you know, Mm. this confident stride across the hall. And I went up to him and I said, are you uh, Dr. Lekovic? And he said, yes, sort of taken aback. And I I said, "Um, uh, you, you Pat's neurosurgeon. And he said, he said, yes. And the surgery went really well. And I said, uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm, that doesn't really mean that much. And he kind of looked at me like, well, what are you saying? And I said, well, I'm a neurosurgeon too. And I know that, you know, you've got rid of the aneurysm. So it's well, not likely to bleed again, but if he doesn't wake up, then, you know, he's had very bad brain injury and we need to really think this through about how aggressive we're going to be. And so from that experience, I saw what it was like to be on the receiving end of Mm. medical care, having to make decisions for a family member, how different it is to be on that end. And, you know, when I talked to Dr. Lekovic was was super and he was very encouraging and very compassionate. He said, well, don't let them put in a feeding tube or a tracheostomy you know, give him a week or so in the ICU to see if he rallies or gets better. But if he doesn't, then I think it's a reasonable thing to make a decision to to withdraw treatment. But what I did is I felt like I was kind of um, pushing against a sort of um, systematic uh, kind of protocol-driven care, you know, where they would do 
uh, surgery, then get him through the acute illness. He might need a shunt put in. They would put in the feeding tube and the tracheostomy, and then they would send him to a nursing facility. And I just said, no, we're not going to do that. And what I recognized at that moment was I knew Pat because we were very intimately involved in all of my sister's care, and I've known about him, and I knew his life. And I realized that these people didn't know him at all. You know, they knew he was kind of a head on a bed. He was basically a medical condition that they were treating, but they didn't know any of the backstory, and they didn't know what would what he would have wanted. And what I saw was that, you know, we decided to to draw some lines, to not put in a feeding tube, to not do a tracheostomy, and that we were going to back off. And what was amazing to me was that I discussed with his two boys, I told them, it was a very tearful conversation, but I told them, you know, he's not doing well. We're going to give him a week. I flew back to Greensboro and did a bunch of surgery because I had to cancel a bunch of surgery. And then I flew back. I said, if it, if that, at the end of that week, if he's not better, if he hasn't rallied, then we're going to let him go. And what I was expecting was a whole bunch of resistance and, and you know, and and they were clearly very upset. But what was amazing to me is by discussing it with them, they felt empowered and they felt that they were able to participate. They started talking about funeral planning, but it was a change in them. And they said this was much easier for us than it was for our mom, mm. because our with our mom, we thought that she was going to make it. We were always told that she was going to get better. And then when she died, we were completely shell-shocked because they trusted their parents that when they said, that, oh, she's getting better, she's going to do fine. And the reality was she was never going to do well. And then with Pat, we said, you know, he's not getting better. And this is not the life that he would want to live, being in a nursing home, never waking up, being constantly tended to. And they were totally supportive of withdrawing care or saying, you know, let's, 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 uh, withdrawing treatment, let's, let's back off. So, um, the problem I had was, so that was the revelation to me. But the other thing was that um, the palliative care only got involved after the decision was made to withdraw treatment. And I thought that was a terrible loss because mm -hmm. what we really needed was involvement in of those resources as we're going through this whole journey. And I think a lot of times physicians are reluctant to involve palliative care or to bring them in until decision has been made to terminate care, terminate treatment. And then, of course, then you're dealing, it felt more like funeral planning. You know, mm. we, we had, we, it was, it was too late in the game. They were wonderful. I mean, I thought they were great, but they could have been such an asset to us to help the kids, to help us make decisions, to discuss things, to talk about what we're doing to Pat during the week that we're kind of um, waiting to see if he rallied. And so I, I am a huge believer of in palliative care, but the problem is a lot of times those resources are not applied early enough in the in in the care of a, a dying or very severely injured patient. And I feel like that's that's a total loss. I actually think that's more of a problem with the physicians who are rendering the care than the palliative care people who are who are um, ready and able to participate. And so I feel that one of my uh, realizations was we need to do a much better job of more early integration of palliative care, hospice care. You you got to talk about dying. You got to talk about what's going to happen, and you got to go through these these steps rather than waiting to the end of the line to then make decisions. Well, how do how do we change that with the medical community? And it, you know, we we tend to to say that a lot in the in the years that I've been with hospice. But you know, 
I, I feel like if we empower the individuals and teach them about palliative care, maybe they can ask for it. But how do we work with our colleagues within the hospital to inform them of how powerful um, the palliative care team can be uh, uh, far before it's like withdrawing treatment? How, what is your opinion about that? Well, so this is my mission, okay? And this is why I am now very focused on that and one of the goals that I have. I've, I've written I've, uh, written a book. Um, I couldn't find a publisher. I now have an agent. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, rewriting sections of it. But And I've written several articles for the New York Times, which have been published in the New York Times, and it's all about this process. Like um, one of the things is I think you need to – enlighten the medical community, the physicians who care for patients that, you know, I think it's a sense of ownership. Like if I involve palliative care, then I'm admitting, admitting defeat or I'm, I'm saying that we're not doing well. I think that needs to go away. It needs to be, you know, I'm getting palliative care involved because there's lots of issues here. And this is a traumatic experience for the patient and their entire family. And we need to address those issues. Uh, so one of the things I'm doing is I, work in in my own neuro ICU. Marlene Golden is the medical director, and she and I have been trying to put together end-of-life process in our ICU so that we can better transition patients and we can integrate the care between all of the providers. So um, I I went and talked at the Schwartz Conference in in Boston, and I think that there's there's a wellspring of very, very passionately interested, motivated, caring people who are ready to, to help us make uh, to, to change the way we practice medicine. But I think that it's going to take all the participants to be, agree and be willing to do it. Uh, and in the ICU, um, you know, one of the articles that I had published was about moral distress in neurosurgery. And I think it's very hard on caregivers if you don't have a cohesive message, if you don't have uh, everyone integrated together, working together from the same on the same page, uh, one of the things that I see a lot is continuing care for patients who are already brain dead, mm. and patients and the families don't want to accept that they are brain dead. And then, what do you do? How do you how do you talk to them? How do you say, you know, this isn't this is not reversible? We're we're actually hurting your loved one rather than helping them. We need to let them go. You know, these are very, very difficult decisions. But at the same time, if you keep going and keep doing care in someone who is already brain dead, you uh, cause a lot of moral distress in the caregivers who feel that they're doing things that aren't really helpful for the patient. They aren't really reversing any of the any of the the um, the, the the suffering and the tragedy. And in fact, they're causing more. Uh, suffering. And then, for example, I'll give you an example of I had a patient who was shot in the head um, and uh, was not brain dead because uh, one kid was shot in the head and he became brain dead because his brain swelled and herniated. And so he died. He had brain death. So we would not have been able to keep him alive regardless. This other patient um, had, when she was shot in the head, um, her skull exploded. So it took the pressure off. But she was devastated by this injury. So we initially did some surgery to try to fix what had been done, but she never woke up. Mm. So I found that I needed to jump into the breach and kind of go and talk to the family and say, hey, you know, she's not brain dead. She's never she's not going to die. 
uh, in, imminently, but she's never going to wake up. You know, her the, the structural damage to her brain has been so severe that there's no way she's going to wake up. And she's not, you know, she's a mother of three. It was a tragic situation. She had three little kids, a young woman. So you want to do everything you can. But I feel like if we just sort of, you know, put the feeding tube in, do the tracheostomy off to the nursing home, we're, we're just passing the buck. We're wow. not really sitting and saying, hey, you know, this is not going to go the way you want it to go. And the reality is she's never going to become independent again. We're never she's never going to be the person, the mother able to take care of her kids. Is that what she wanted? You know, and a lot of times people don't want to have those conversations and they just want to avoid that, the sadness and the grief that comes with that. And we have to be much more um, willing to face the sadness that we see on a regular basis. Well, you know, I think it, yeah, well, I feel like it does take skill to, to even begin these hard conversations with, with uh, patients, but you did mention one word and it's the truth, um, honest and Mm -hmm. forthright. And why do you feel that, you know, us who work in the healthcare industry have such a hard time with facing the fact and turning around and speaking the truth to our families. So I, I've, I've been trying to figure this out for quite a while. I can sort of look at myself and what mistakes I've made in the past and also uh, why people make those decisions. And I think that doctors want to insulate themselves from grief and from loss and from tragedy and from sadness. And they want to, insulate themselves from feeling vulnerable. And what I have discovered is that the empathy and the compassion that you display, that you give to people is actually what people really desperately want. So they want empathetic and compassionate connection with their provider. And doctors often feel that what they need to do is they need to be precise and correct and not make mistakes. And I've recognized that actually people are much more accepting and forgiving of medical errors. What they really desperately want is to know that they're cared about, that they're cared for, that the doctor really feels their suffering, that they understand what they're going through. So I think that doctors, one of the, one of the things I want to accomplish with this book is to have a conversation far earlier in medical training. So I think that, you know, I had to come to this myself the hard way figuring it out for myself. A lot of these things can be, you can help trainees by teaching them, by, by showing them what's going on, by giving them a heads up. Uh, a certain amount of this is just experience and wisdom that you get because you've been around a long time and you've seen a lot of bad things. But I felt that if I could have reached medical students much earlier, if I could have talked with people much earlier, that really would have helped attune them to these situations to get them thinking about this so that so that these aren't a big leap and and that we can really start to change the way we have conversations. So I think that one of the key things, the other thing that goes with this is um, that you, uh, I think when doctors have, I, I call in one of the articles, I, I talk about emotional armor. And I think that we kind of armor up over time all of these sad and painful things, what we end up doing is we try to insulate ourselves from them. In the reality, by insulating yourself from it, you're actually causing yourself more harm than benefit. Because when you pull back from a sad 
moment or you say, well, I'm not really going to have that conversation because it makes me uncomfortable. That ends up actually causing you a lot of damage because you end up withdrawing emotionally. You end up uh, filtering everything so that you end up not connecting. And by not connecting, you actually hurt yourself. So it's almost uh, counterintuitive. And this has been a uh, kind of my big discovery, which is that if you actually lean into this and you say, I'm going to have that painful conversation. I'm going to talk about dying. I'm going to go where I don't feel entirely comfortable. And you kind of bring that into your own personal experience. It's, it's a, it was a eureka moment for me. I actually felt better. I felt, I didn't feel damaged. I felt uh, connected and that connection gave me uh, sustenance. Uh, so I've been kind of looking into this and I think that uh, one of the articles I've written is called um, From Emotional Armor to Emotional Agility. And the idea of this is that people who are emotionally agile, people who are able to connect and to move between, you know, when I look at the 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 span that I have to cover, I have to be super detached and clinical to cut into someone's head to operate deep within their brain. And at the same time, I have to have a connection with that patient. So the problem is if I'm super connected to the patient, then I'm going to have a very hard time having the distance to be able and the dispassionate connection to be able to do surgery. So what is the person who is the person who's able to bounce between those uh, big make those big shifts? And the answer is it's someone who has emotional agility, who can have be vulnerable, allow themselves to be vulnerable, allow themselves to feel sad, and then able to bounce back and say, well, now I have to do surgery and I have to, you know, put on my put on my game face. And it's really kind of hard, but I've discovered that actually if you do that, I don't feel burned out. I feel empowered. I feel excited by my job. I feel energized. And that's one of the things I want to communicate to other people, which is by leaning into these sad things and by going to the place of vulnerability and grief, it actually opens doors rather than closes them. And I now look at that emotional armor that I was wearing and I say, you know, I think it was irreparably damaged when my sister became ill mm -hmm. and when Pat died. But now I've discarded it. I don't need it anymore. And and what I what I really want, and I, and I know that I'm on the right track because what happens is you get kind of you get into a negative loop where you like you get distant, you get uncomfortable talking about sad things, so you, you kind of withdraw, and that ends up leading to a bad place. That ends up leading to burnout. Um, I had just the other day, I had a very sad experience with a patient who uh, is is dying. I had done surgery on him. We tried to do everything we could. He's not getting better. I had a conversation with his wife, who's a nurse, and I said, look, this really isn't going well. You know, you could do some feedings, but He's not going to do well in the end, and you have to kind of honor his wishes and say, well, maybe we're just going to keep him comfortable, but we're not going to put a feeding tube in. He's 80 years old. We're not going to put a feeding tube in. We're going we're gonna to keep him comfortable, but we're going to transition to palliative and hospice care. And she, uh, she, she needed me to say that, to give her permission to do that so that she could feel comfortable making that decision because that was the decision that she was wanting to make. And so instead of me feeling in the past, I think I would have felt like rec uh, recriminations or uh, that I had failed. You know, I had done surgery and that didn't work and, and, and he was dying and it was my fault. I put mm -hmm. all that aside. That, that was kind of my junk. That wasn't hers. She was grateful to me for the surgery that we had done for our trying and for trying to give him good care. 
And when I said, hey, you know, we're we're, we're going to switch gears here. We're going to honor his uh, his wishes and we're going to let him die. It was like a, it was like a gift, you know, and, and and so I was able to connect with her on a very deep level and say, look, you know, we're not making it here. Let's let's let him go. And so that sort of has been a big change in my whole process and the way I uh, do things. And so when then, then she said, well, I'm going to connect with palliative care and we're going to move into hospice. And so instead of her, yes, she feels grief. She's about to lose her husband, but she also feels that she's doing the right thing. And she had that moral distress feeling of I'm keeping going, but my husband has already told me he doesn't really want this and this isn't really in his best interest. So she didn't feel good about what was happening, but she needed her medical team who she respects and, and appreciates to say, this is the right decision. You're making the right decision and, and you should feel okay with it. And so that, that, that's that I am now a different guy than I was before I went through all this personally. And I want, what I want to communicate to people is why that's important and how we need to change and how we need to make compassion, the center of medical care and how we need to really focus on these issues because that's the only, that's what patients want. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what makes for good medical care. And you need to be able to flex. You need to be able to say, well, we're going to try, but you may not make it. And, you know, for, for, for a, a culture in which everybody, every single one of us is going to die, it's like we don't prepare. We don't talk about dying. It's, it's like it's, a, it's the boogeyman. You know, everyone is uncomfortable mentioning it. Well, why, why not talk about it right up front? We're all going to die. And, you know, one of my, my professor in neurosurgery, he said that in England, when he went there, he said, he said one of the English neurosurgeons said, to him, he said, "In America, you know, uh, you 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 don't. You're so uncomfortable with dying that you whip everyone with plastic tubes up until the moment they die." And I just think that's a lousy way to take care of people. Where it's high, it's expensive, it's kind of cruel, and it's because we're not willing to actually, you know, face the music. And that feels weird for us too to know that someone's about to die or to try, you know, extensive care during the end of their life, and and yet not stop, take a moment and say, is this really what I would want? You know, why, why is it that doctors don't have this done to themselves, but do this to other people? You know, there's a real disconnect in the care that we're providing patients. Well, I think you're doing some really uh, mission-driven work when it comes to incorporating these types of conversations. It, you know, you've gone from you know, being a neurosurgeon to a personal experience and this eureka moment. And I think you're a gift to other physicians. And how are you, how are you getting in touch with other physicians who don't have a personal experience and trying to show them a, this different way of approaching situations? Well, um, I want my book to be published. I think that will be important if it does. Yeah. I'm going and talking at medical schools. I've been invited to speak at Columbia Medical School. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to uh, uh, go to UNC, to Chapel Hill to speak there. So I really want to get into medical schools. I think that um, this podcast is, is important. I think that, um, you know, getting articles published in the New York Times Absolutely. Has, made a, has made a big difference. You know, they have a readership that's uh, 70 plus thousand people. And so um, getting this word out, having these discussions going. And, and the other th thing I found is that there's there's a huge cadre of like minded people. Like when I went to the um, Schwartz Center, Schwartz Conference in Boston, this is all about empathy 
uh, medical care driven by empathy. Uh, Helen Rice is a, a doctor, a psychiatrist at Harvard, wrote a, a book called The Empathy Effect. This is all about how we change, how we do things, training. I'm, I'm bringing a program to Cone Health uh, with the um, blessing of Dr. Uh, Bruce Swords, who's the chief medical officer, Mary Jo A. Uh, Cagle, mm-hmm. who is the COO, and Terry Aiken, who's the CEO, said, "Yeah, we need to bring this. We need to train physicians to be to have greater empathy." And then I'm setting up with uh, Marlene Golden. I'm setting up a, a team in the in the neuro ICU to say we we're, we're going to do what are called unit based Schwartz rounds, where we actually look at individual patients and we start to break down the silos. There shouldn't be a silo between nurses and a silo, you know, a separate silo of doctors. We need to put everyone together so that we can kind of work together. And we need to really change the way we have conversations. You know, in the neuro ICU, we probably do this uh, every day or every other day or every few days, certainly, where we have these crises. And we need to have a way to help people through it. You know, when I talked to Marlene, she said when her husband, Alan, was uh, sick, uh, he had uh, kidney failure. Uh, they wanted to go to hospice care, and the doctors wouldn't wouldn't let him do it until they said, "Well, enough, we're done." There shouldn't be like there's a silo between palliative care and hospice mm. and medical care, and that's crazy. Like, why do you only go to palliative care after you have decided to throw in the towel? Right. Where you really need them is when you're making those decisions, and the idea that. That, that that input is a threat to the medical provider or the physician is to me a sort of form of lunacy. I just think you need to incorporate all of those things because when you talk to patients or when you're on the receiving end of medical care, you suddenly realize this stinks. You know, mm. I don't like feeling so, you know, remote. I feel I don't feel the compassion. I don't feel the connection. I don't feel anyone holding my hand. I, you know, patients, um, uh, don't when they're in the ICU. A lot of times, you know, they they don't touch their loved one. They're they're the the loved one is often are, they're stripped of their clothes. They're stripped of their possessions. They they lose their identity when they check in as a patient. They become a generic patient, and that's just that's just a lousy way for us to take care of people. Uh, you know, we are all going to be patients, and so we need to change the way we deliver care and the way we look at our patients. And our patients are us. We need to be there for them, and we need to connect with them. Oh man. I want you to be my doctor. <laughs> um, you don't want neurosurgery. <laughs> and I don't, but I want I want your heart and and I believe you're you're on the the cusp of changing um, this field and um, and allowing physicians to to armor down and 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 be vulnerable and it's it's not going to be an easy transition. But as you said, it's it's rewarding for the patient and family, but also. For the individual who's providing that care, I I can't thank you enough um, for coming onto this podcast, for sharing your personal story and how it's changed how you approach conversations and these hard conversations with patients and families. You're doing such great work, and I applaud you. Your New York Times articles are wonderful, and I can't wait to read your book. Now, do you have a title for your book? Um, the title has been uh, changing, and um, it is uh, currently uh, uh, "Grief Connects Us: Aligning Patients, Aligning Patients and Doctors." Wow, 
Well, how do we keep in touch with you and, and anticipate when this book might be published? Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, I, I have an agent, I have a book proposal. What, what I, what I found, it's really interesting because, you know, I was never a writer and I thought, well, my grief story was important. And what this agent told me was your grief story is important to you. It's not important to everyone else. Everybody else has their own story, but what you can do is you need to shift to tell your story and then say how we need to change things. So it went from a memoir to a a work of uh, prescriptive nonfiction. And it's a little bit of both because you have to, you have to go through the story to then have the, the, the lights come on. I I describe it in the talk I give. I say, this is, it was as if I went from seeing in black and white to seeing in color, you know, everything was there, but I didn't realize what, the meaning of everything. So you have to go on that journey. And I think people who go on that journey, you know, their lives are different. Their lives change. There's no going back. You, 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 you don't go back to a a prior state. And I find, um, there is such a concentration of, of goodwill and, um, and really people who, who recognize this, we need to become a force of good and a force of change. You know, one book I read, which just blew me away, was a book called Compassionomics, which I would encourage people to read, which is that actually it, compassion is not an add-on in healthcare. Compassion is the center of the mission. And places and people who pr- practice compassionate care, do their patients do better. They have no shortage of patients. You know, when I when I have referrals, I I am blessed with uh, a tremendous um, wait list because people want to come see me, and it's because I have that I, I provide that that compassion based care. You know, patients want to like their doctors. Oh yeah, so, absolutely. So, but when people don't like their doctors, there's a real connection and communication that has occurred because they want to like them. So I guess I look and I say. If you solve these problems, you solve burnout or a lot of burnout, you bring people, you, you allow physicians to connect with their emotional sides. You know, that part of that siloed mentality is that the nurses are the empathic people and the doctors are kind of the cold clinical ones. Well, that's crazy, too. You know, <laughs> you, you, you need it on both sides of the equation and everybody needs to work together. So, you know, I'm hopeful that um, it's taken me four years to actually refine my message. You know, I, I, I uh, try, uh, send in the to do a um, TED talk and I'm hoping I get selected, but I I feel that, um, you know, whether or not people are listening, I need to say this because this is kind of spiritually important for me. Helps me remember my sister. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I tell me your sister's name, Victoria, Victoria. You know, Victoria Stern Whalen, she, one of the things I didn't mention about, about my book, but she wrote a journal of her illness. And so I've woven that journal into my book and she was an actress. She was an amazing person. Excuse me a second. Sorry. No, you're fine. I mean, this is, this is what it takes, um, you know, to change is these personal experiences that empower you to open the doors to how we need to change the system. And, and to me, I applaud that it has to, it has to be that powerful 
um, experience that, especially with someone we love, that really changes things. And I think your sister Victoria is part of this process, and it's a way to keep her memory alive with everything you do moving forward. So I applaud you. Well, thanks. Well, she wrote this journal. She, she was an actress, a very good actress. And she, one of the things I learned from her was how to handle rejection because she kept applying for, you know, uh, auditioning for roles and wouldn't get them. And then she just dust herself off and go the next day. And I said, well, I'm going to do the same with this writing. And that's been helpful because as, as a neurosurgeon, there's kind of built-in validation. You show up for work, you have a patient, you, you know, you're always busy. And a lot of people try and fail and they just try again. So I learned that from her, but I also learned that, you know, there was no crowd that she was too afraid of. She would, she would just, um, do it. And, and, but she, she wrote this journal so that she said she wanted to do a one woman show on Broadway about, or wherever she would land it about, you know, surviving leukemia. And, um, so she wrote this journal and I think it's a very good, um, uh, testimony of, of getting sick, uh, and what it's like to be a patient. And I think that's a key message. And one I want to give to other people, because if you know what it's like to be a patient, sorry, (laughs) hang on, hang on a second. Sure. Once you know what it's like to be a patient, you have to change the way you treat people mm. and how you act as a doctor. I love that. I absolutely love that. And wow. You know, this this time with you has been so inspiring. And it it's made me, even on my journey with this you know, live well, die well tour that I'm on. It, it, it's made it really about connection and empathy and, and I applaud you and what your book will be published and it will be out in the, in the hands. Um, and you're going to change how we practice. And so I, one person at a time, one doctor at a time. And I believe that at the end, we're all going to benefit from, uh, the wisdom, um, from your sister. And uh, it's a way to re- it's a way for all of us to remember her and her legacy as well. So, Dr. you're very kind, and I, I tremendously admire what you're doing, um, connecting people and looking and saying, well, what are the regulations in terms of hospice, and what makes sense, and what doesn't, and why why are we doing the things we're doing? You know, you your speech was very inspiring to me because oh, wow. it was all about. Um, you know, your own loss and then how that sets you on this journey. And then you, I mean, the thing that I, the thing that I'm inspired. So this agent that I talked to, she said, you know, why should your book be published? There are so many people, this is a crowded field. And I said, you're missing the point. You know, we all need to connect. We need to start talking with one voice. We need to change the way we're doing things. The fact that other people are interested in, and 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 want to change things is inspiring to me. It's not like I'm competing. I guess I need to get my voice out there, but I feel like we all have um, – everybody's perspective is of value and everybody's uh, – uh, what they bring to the table. That's how you, that's how you can change things. You know, I, when I look at like the short center and I see how they, you know, one guy, uh, said he celebrated the compassion and the empathy of the care that he received. And it's created this movement. And I look and go, same here, you know, same here. We need to change how we 
apply palliative care. We need to t- change how we talk to patients. We need to change how we talk to people at the end of their life. There's so many things that we need to do. And that has to be not, you know, I think when hospitals talk about it, they say, oh, we're going to add empathy to your all your other duties. And it's like, you're missing the point. Yeah. Empathy is the foundation. Compassion is the foundation on which you build everything else. And if things aren't good enough in your health system, if they aren't good enough in your care, you know, then change them. Don't don't just allow things to go poorly because that's just the way we do things. You know, I, I think I told our CEO, I said, you know, the problem with healthcare right now is we take patients for granted. We just assume they'll show up. We assume that they'll wait two or three hours for their doctor. And, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of stresses and 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 lack of capacity. You know, I'm I'm often late and I'm I'm always apologetic, but I've got so many things going on. But the thing is, we can't take patients for granted. We can't assume that they'll just be there. We have to really provide the nurturing, supportive uh, care that that really we should be providing, not just technical. Um, exercises. You know, for me to be a neurosurgeon and just do surgery after surgery and it's all technically perfect but soulless, that's not good enough. Right. That's that's that that's not that's not what people want or need. What they want and need is is that connection and and a partnership. I absolutely with their doctors I absolutely and, and agree. in their care. Absolutely agree. Well I'm really excited. I can't wait to see how this evolves, whether it's, you know, New York Times articles and when your book gets published. I do believe that you are a special human being and you, you're you a doctor that leads with his heart, um, but also um, is a very technical and clinical person that can do really hard things. Um, but I'm so glad that you entered my life and shared with me your story of your sister and your brother-in-law. And um, if there's anything that we can do here at Death by Design Podcast, um, or while I'm on the road to support you, please ask. Um, And I look forward to seeing your book published, um, and we wish you the best. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.